Asia Tech Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. Hello and welcome to Asia Tech Podcast Stories. My name is Graham Brown, joined today by James DiBiasio, who is the co-founder of the DigiFin Group, which is a specialist media publication focused on fintech and financial transformation with an Asian bias. James, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Graham. Fantastic to have you. Hong Kong, Tokyo, talking to each other about the future of finance, what's happening in the world, in Asia particularly. And I think as well, a lot of people outside of Asia are not aware of just the speed of transformation of things that are happening in Asia right now. So we're going to dive into that today and learn a little bit more, unpack that financial transformation that you write about on a daily basis. So tell us a little bit about Digfin first and what exactly you do. Okay, great. So um, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Hello, everybody. Um, so Digfin is a new company, online media business, uh, started by myself and my my fellow co-founder, uh, Chris Ryan. Uh, I've been a, a financial journalist in Asia, based in Hong Kong, since 1997. Uh, I took a break uh, in 2016, and when I came back to the to, to Hong Kong, uh, jobless, uh, was just, uh, tinkering around, um, met with Chris, who has been in the financial services industry as a regional CEO, uh, for, for big time companies for much of his career. He was looking to retire, uh, formally, but still was very interested in what was going on in the, the technology space, which has really, um, you know, really, really taking financial services by, by, by a storm these days. So we wanted to do something in this, in this area and we teamed up and set up a website that launched in actually about a year ago now, March, mid-March of 2017, we, we launched and I, I you know, I, I'm, I'm writing stories. Uh, Chris is more on the, 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 the connections and the business side and we want to provide kind of an in-depth look at actual use cases, actual case studies, what, what firms are doing both at the, the startup level where the innovation is coming from, as well as uh, the, the, the banks, the insurance companies, the asset wealth managers, you know, the institutions, what these people are doing to, uh, to drive change internally to the way they operate with their you know, clients and counterparties. And, and at, at the end of the day, how technology is forcing or leading them to change the business models, hmm. changing the way that finance gets done. Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show. Change is the, the, the word of the hour. I mean, you've been in, well, you've been in Hong Kong now for just over 20 years. Yeah. So you've seen a lot change, not just in Hong Kong, but in Asia generally. I'm curious to know, why? I mean, I don't know how you, you came with, obviously, your company, but why did you choose to come to Asia in the first place? What was it about Asia in 1997 that attracted you? Um, let's see. I was uh, tail end of 26. I was working for Institutional Investor in New York, which was my first real job. Uh, and I think at that point, it was I wanted to just have a a bit of an adventure, right? Mm. Try something new. Uh, I had lived in Europe as a student, so I liked the idea of, of, of uh, living abroad for, for a time. I love New York City. It was a great, great time living there. So I wasn't, I wasn't thinking, oh, I'm going to come to Asia. And that, that was end of story. But I thought it would be, it would be, you know, fun and interesting, and it would, you know, it would be a good experience and something I could take back. But then the opportunity set here uh, opened up for me over time, and of course, I enjoyed living here. So. Hong Kong's a great town, and um, and uh, so I ended up staying. Uh, and then a little bit later in that process, I also uh, ended up uh, meeting a, a wonderful uh, woman from from Hong Kong, a Cantonese native. So uh, we got married, and so that's the old story. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I don't think this. And so, like, I think with most people who come to Asia from the West or from other parts of the world, or really who is an expatriate anywhere, I guess uh, that you you don't expect that you're going to be signing up for something, right? You, right? you just assume it's a couple years. And the majority of people do come here. They do their contract and they go back to wherever they, they came from. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but you know, in this case... Uh, it worked out. So 1997, yeah. when you came, obviously that was a, a pivotal year, right? So July 1997 is the, the handover of Hong Kong, formerly from the UK back to China. When did you arrive? Did you arrive... Before. I arrived in January, so right. I had I had six months of of formal uh, 
time where it's still the, the, the British rule. But uh, I, by that time, I think the, 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 the culture and the, the atmosphere had already shifted into a, a different mode. So yeah. I never felt like I was in, you know, a very r- real colonial Hong Kong. But um, the, for me, the real action was not the handover. Uh, the real action happened a few days after the handover when the Thai bot hit the skids. Yeah. And that was the beginning of the Asian financial crisis. Yeah. Uh, and then as a, as a young financial reporter who really didn't know anything, <laughs> that was uh, an amazing uh, learning experience. I was fortunate to be employed by a New York-based company whose revenues were all basically American. So yeah. the you know this is the go-go end of the 90s. Um, so my job was safe. Uh, everything got cheap around me. They they allowed me to travel uh, for the company, doing a lot of interviews and learning stuff. So I don't know if I did a great job for institutional investor, but I certainly soaked up the region like a sponge mm-hmm. and uh, really enjoyed it. And so then when I did end up moving uh, to to finance Asia and set up Asian investor in that in that family uh, in 2000, I had. You know, institutional investor uh, basically had funded three years of learning at a time when the crisis was, um, you know, engulfing the the region, and, and that's how you learn. When things don't work, is when you learn, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? It was best way. All these all these models that had been built up and jerry rigged in, in the region, and then they collapsed, and that was uh, it's like, oh, okay, it's a little bit, you know, you, you, you get to see, you know, how things actually function or, or the real function. world right yeah uh, i mean th- that must have been a, a fascinating time i came to uh tokyo in 1995 and i left in 97 in july interestingly and so i left right before the the asian crisis hit but you were right in the middle of it when it happened and i mean my you know my memory is obviously a bit sketchy but i remember obviously all the way leading up to the the financial crisis happening in 97 the bot i mean well the thailand was on fire it was growing sort of eight eight nine percent gdp annually it was a real you know it was one of the new tigers it was a success story and then they floated it and the whole thing collapsed what was it like to be in the middle of that you know having come from new york and having only really six months under your belt in asia well i was too green to really uh make real sense of it i i so i tried to just use it to to learn and understand it was really difficult from a from a work perspective to add a lot of value because i didn't have the contacts in place uh you know i didn't i hadn't been here for five years already and and have a lot of high level people i could call on to to understand it so i think for me it was more of an apprenticeship Mm. uh but but i think the important part is that as i did start talking to talking to bankers talking to investors talking to some of these these big corporates to understand uh, you know, try to understand what was the Asia story all about, and then why did we have this crisis, and how did that change and, and lay the foundation really for for the great expansion that we've had since then. Um, and so, I, you know, you can't really understand. I don't think you can understand the 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 growth of the Asia story without understanding that, that we had this massive crisis, mm. traumatic, uh, affected you know tens of millions of people. Um, but it, it, it also forced a lot of places here to kind of burn things to the ground and, and rebuild on a better footing. Um, and I think that's true in, in Korea. I think that's true in Thailand, Indonesia. You know, there was maybe the politics are, are, might be a little bit of a separate issue, but the, you know, these places, whether you, you want to, you know, scream and shout at the IMF or not, but the IMF sort of helped or forced these guys to put their economies in a much more better governance, better, you know, better shape. And, um, and, and there's a big reason why they, they've done very well since then. Um, and I think they, they just sort of were able to clear out a lot of the, the, the worst cronious practices and put mm-hmm. in much, much more fun, you know, they, they built up their central banks, they, you know, they put in institutions, um, and, and better governance practices and they, they, they liberalize the economy somewhat. So they, they, it's not perfect. You still have too many places where there's, you know, where a handful of rich families have too much power, but, um, but much better than before and, and really enabled the next leg up, um, as, as people started, you know, the middle class was able to rise again. Mm. Has that sort of laid the foundation for what we have now is, can we sort of trace it back to the, the Asian financial crisis? I mean, at the time, 
it, it was really an era of, of fast-track capitalism, wasn't it, where all the Asian governments were really sort of concertining capitalism in, in a matter of, you know, less than a decade, right? Where in the rest of the world, it happened over generations. Here, it ha- happening in, like, you can count in the number of years on your hand, how, the, you know, and they were rapidly expanding. And that sort of all kind of came to a head, didn't it? But it's still, do we, you know, has that sort of changed the mindset in Asia? Are we sort of in a better place now? I think what I think the Asian financial crisis uh, forced uh, a lot of this headlong rush to to growth. Uh, it, it took a lot of the excesses out of the system and forced people to recalibrate and 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 put the way they build up institutions, uh, government institutions, regulatory institutions, put in better laws, put in. Uh, uh, a more liberal regime, more open, uh, and then of course you also had you know, the expansion of global trade and, and these other things. Which so I wouldn't say that the the whole Asia story emerged from the Asian financial crisis of ninety seven ninety eight, but I think it was a it was a, a needed, although you, you could argue how how necessary the the, the pain and the bloodletting was, but it, but certainly it created a a necessary cleaning out of a lot of bad practices. A lot of uh, a lot of uh, corrupt corrupt practices, and it's not that corruption has disappeared, but I think it just put in better governance so that uh, these things would be managed in, in a more sensible way. So I, it, it 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 did lay the foundation, I think, for the next twenty years of of, of very positive growth. So you're based in Hong Kong, which obviously is one of the countries that always features at the top of those economic freedoms rankings. I want to talk a little bit about the context before we dive into some of the stories that you write about on a a regular basis. I'm just having a look at the data here, James, from the Heritage Foundation, who published like an annual survey of, you know, economic freedoms around the world. And it's interestingly that Hong Kong and Singapore rank one and two in that list above New Zealand, Switzerland, Taiwan, etc., what is it that those those you know jurisdictions get right? What what do they do? Is it sort of everything that you talked about here in terms of you know just more economic freedoms, more liberalisation, or do they have a different sort of attitude mindset towards the whole thing? Um, although I think those Heritage Foundation listings are actually pretty uh, misleading, but um, but broadly speaking, Hong Kong and Singapore have rule of law. Uh, they have, um, particularly in Hong Kong, um, you know, they have a number of personal freedoms uh, that, if if not guaranteed by the by the government, are at least sort of in the culture. Um, and uh, you know, in a place like Hong Kong, you can you can sue the government and and maybe win. Mm. Um, <clears throat> you can't do that in most other countries in the region. And you um, and, and then they're they're you know they've always been entrepot, right? They're Small, <clears throat> freewheeling little ports that um, that w- were uh, protected from the terrible uh, mismanagement of their hinterlands, China for for Hong Kong, and then Southeast Asia for Singapore. And so the world comes to these places to do business in the region where the taxes are low, uh, where the the contracts are reliable. Um, you know, sort of Western law. Uh, well, not just Western, but but British common law practices um and uh and that's made them very successful uh and and and, and i think that will probably continue for some time mm. okay well let's unpack some of the stories that you write about in Dij Finn. obviously as we said there's a very wide remit there you know you cover everything from consumer credit to blockchain to you know banking you know what would be some of the areas that you can pick out recently just share with us some of the stories which i think you know because a lot of our audience are outside of asia yeah you know, and looking into asia they may not be aware of like i said the the extent of the growth or the change but also how developed the markets are so just give us a feel for just pick a few stories for us that have come out recently on digfin that would be a particular interest to people outside of the region looking in and trying to get a handle on what's going on so what Digifin does, I, I talk to people either at startups or at large financial institutions about how they're either bringing some technology that's going to change, uh, create new business models in financial services. So the stories I do tend to be quite micro. I, I look at specific cases. But I think the trends that would be of interest would be 
uh, first of all, in Asia, you've got a real mix of you've got these hyper, <clears throat> you know, um, developed markets like uh, Hong Kong and Singapore, Japan, Australia. You've got the giant emerging markets of India and China, and then you have also these these uh, emerging or frontier markets: uh, Indonesia, Myanmar, Vietnam. So you have a a huge range, a lot of variety here. Um, the second thing to to note is that when it comes to fintech, uh, which is my area of specialization, um, the I think that the changes in Asia will be far more profound or at least different than what you would have in the United States, Canada, or Western Europe. Um, because a lot of what technology does is it makes things uh, simpler for customers. Consumers through their mobile phones can get simpler, more transparent, easier to use access to things. Um, and you can start to do a lot of things on your phone that in previously you would have to have a bank account to be able to do. You have to actually physically go to a bank, and stand in line and, you know, fill out some forms. Um, and, and there's, there's hundreds of millions of people in this part of the world who don't have a bank account at all. They don't have a credit card. They might have a debit card at best. Um, uh, but they have a phone, uh, and and they can they can start to use that to to access information, pricing information, uh, merchant selling information. They can use it to transfer money, remit money, um, and then they can start to use it for for getting basic loans. And from there, I think they'll they'll start to get you know investments, insurance, all kinds of other things. Yeah, I mean, you see that on a day to day basis. If you go to mainland China, how people will use their phones to pay for everything. And, you know, once you're into the system like WeChat or Alibaba's Alipay, you could pretty much, I know there's been a lot of documented case studies about this, people saying, can I live without cash? And people saying that, well, China, whether or not this is true, I mean, interested to know your opinion on it, would mainland China become the first country to go cashless? I mean, maybe in the urban centers. What do you think? I mean, looking outside of Asia, people may scratch their head and think, you know, this is far away. But what's the reality? <clears throat> If, if you live in a big city like Beijing or Shanghai or Shenzhen, uh, then yeah, <clears throat> you can live almost entirely cashless. Um, you may not be able to do that if you if you leave those areas, but um, you you do everything on your on your on your phone these days. It's um, it's pretty remarkable. Uh, it's even difficult now for for Hong Kongers or anybody foreigners to to show up in China and and, and get you know even a, a car, uh, get a taxi or, or or use <clears throat> use traditional methods because everything there is connected to a local uh, credit card or bank account. So to use those services, um, you, you need to have a local financial link. Uh, and but if you don't have that, then you don't get the service. So um, just trying to get a car, uh, you, you know, uh, you try to get like a a, a DD uh, taxi or something. Um, you know, just hailing one on the street and paying with cash uh, is is a bit barbaric and <laughs> not always easy to not always easy to get the cars. I always have to ask people to uh, to to call a car for me and either have have them pay for I give them cash and they pay <laughs> for the app or or I, or or they they ask the driver if if he'll take cash. But it's 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 strange how um, how out of you know how how, how quickly uh, things have moved there. So China is the most sophisticated. Uh, ecosystem in the world, and and there's a lot that um, there's a lot that we can learn, and the, we're going to start seeing these companies come out of of China, um, and and but how easily they 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 do so because the conditions outside of China are so different uh, will will be interesting to see. Right. Well, that will be my next question because those systems which they've built, you know, those financial infrastructures they've built in China, which have worked very well in China, and 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 to some extent, have been protected for you know many years. Do they survive outside of China? Because you, you need that sort of consensus, don't you? You need to have that connection between a bank and a credit card company and a mobile company and a network and so on to, to bring all this together. I, I don't know. You can, can you take WeChat Pay or Alipay and pay for something in Hong Kong? I mean, it's just over the border. I mean, to what extent uh, is this transferable? <laughs> Uh, uh, up until recently, the answer would be no. And now those companies have launched local versions that are kind of full-service versions. Um, I don't know what the uptake is yet, um, but uh, it, it, it's, it's just begun. So, uh, it, but that's just Hong Kong. 
um, and it's it's for fairly straightforward services. When it comes to financial services, um, whether it's payments or something more uh, value added, the issues are not about the technology <clears throat> and the you know those issues around like an ecosystem that 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 sort of thing is is fairly straightforward. Those are just commercial relationships that anybody could forge. Um, the issues come into first regulation, licensing, uh, compliance uh, with these regulations. You know, just because you're a, it, it's the same when a big American company would would rock up to some emerging market. They thought, well, we've got, you know, we've got all the knowledge, we've got all the, the tech, we've got all the product, we've got the brand. But it turned out that they had to, they had to learn how to localize those businesses, and and um, it'll be the same with Chinese ones. So they they don't have much experience overseas, so they have a long learning curve uh, in that regard. Uh, the second one is, do they have a product that's going to fit what people? in these other markets want. I think in a lot of emerging markets where you have people who uh, might have roughly similar ex life experience to people growing up in China you know, 20 years ago, then yeah, they probably do have a good offer. But um, in a place like Hong Kong or the United States, the society is quite still driven by cash. People have credit cards. There's a lot of people who have established uh, bank accounts and so on. And so do they need, yes, I mean, maybe what, what the Chinese offer is, is a little bit faster, a little better, uh, but is it really going to make a difference? I mean, it's the same argument that if I've got a credit card, do I really need, Ali, um, like, say, Apple Pay on my phone? Hmm. Um, so the adoption <clears throat> might be a little, you know, you've got to change people's habits, um, and so, and you've got to convince them you've got a, a proposition for them that they, they that will really help help the consumer so those things take time takes marketing takes um <clears throat> you know testing and, and figuring out ways in the marketplace so in this regard the chinese aren't different than anybody else trying to enter a new market but they just haven't had much experience of it on the other hand they've got amazing technology amazing ambition um and uh, a great uh, a, you know a great set of principles um i guess the other the other big difference will be how people treat data uh, issues around it's not that the Chinese have no privacy laws but I think the, the habits uh, in China people don't mind giving their data away um, or they're just completely blithe to what they're doing um, but that won't fly you know in Europe for example it would be very difficult to basically what what data in China would be illegal in Europe and would be a harder sell in, in the United States um, but it might be easier to, to do some of that to replicate what they do in you know, India or Indonesia. Right. I mean, I hear both sides of the, the coin on that discussion about data in China. And it's fascinating because it, it's so important. The, the mass of the data that these internet companies are collecting. I mean, obviously, a lot of it is through the payment system. But, you know, Alibaba can then route that back into their retail stores or, you know, transfer sell that data to a mom and pop store to get information about your habits and so on and you know all of that is collected within this big ecosystem which is owned by one company effectively and i hear on the one side that people say well you know it's like you say is that maybe people are less aware of privacy laws or you know less aware of their rights which is a bit of an asian thing maybe and on the other hand people say well you know people trust these companies like Alibaba more than they trust a bank in the West, for example, because they have yeah. that sort of relationship with them. And, you know, they're not always constantly spamming them or, you know, sending them messages. They sort of keep it within that system. I, I think it's important to have a look at that because this is really important for fintech in general, because that data that they collect is so important to be able to deliver that kind of experience and, and you know, service for customers actually create some kind of value in their lives. What are your thoughts on that in terms of the data in Asia? Yeah, no, I mean, this is what drives, it's not just in Asia. I mean, this is what drives uh, the internet economy is data. It's the lifeblood. Um, but the Chinese have the most, I mean, they've got the biggest population and they've got, you know, Tencent probably has about 500 million people using its apps. Um, and uh, Alibaba, I don't know what the numbers would be, but similar numbers who are using its, its e-commerce services and from there they create payments and then from there they can do other things and these guys have um it's not you know you, you mentioned they're not spamming you on the contrary i mean these guys are geniuses at being able to 
collate huge amounts of customer behavior uh, and, and turn that around into how do I understand this customer and how do I serve these this person an offer that they really actually want and will use and will like. Um, and, and there's a little many, I mean, Alibaba and, and Tencent are the two big guys, but there's a, a lot of companies that are doing this, Ping On, uh, Zhang On, uh, Dian Rong, there's, there's a whole, the list goes on and on. Um, and they have found ways to, to, to turn data into, you know, serve, serve it back and continue to learn more about you. Uh, but, but by, by giving you products that, that really fill a, fill a gap. Um, and because financial services were, were so underdeveloped and terrible in China, uh, the, the internet companies, as you say, they created trust. I mean, that's Jack Ma's greatest accomplishment is probably the, 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 the creation of something that people trust in what has been a, a society where there has never really been trust uh, outside of the family. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's an amazing achievement. And I think that, uh, it will, it will gradually start to influence the other parts of the world. But, you know, but in the United States, Amazon would, would probably be the, the closest an, uh, analogy, you know, the, 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 the most similar mm. company to, to what, what, to what these big guys in China do. Right. I mean, in, in the fintech space, obviously we, we've got to look at this in the context of those internet companies as well because you know if you take for example i mean if you were to take the 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 most valuable companies by market cap in asia the the top three would be alibaba tencent and probably china mobile so they're all sort of new economy players where you know you've got like china bank and all that right down the bottom of the list i suppose somewhere maybe half the value of these companies i mean that's important isn't it because these companies now like you say the the financial services industry in these com- in these countries was underdeveloped and these companies have come in and filled the gap you know which in other markets would have already been filled by you know a city or a jp morgan or whoever right they were already there right. so that's correct you know what does that mean for Asia in terms of its sort of competitive advances? Because, I mean, if we keep this conversation about, you know, can China take those business models outside of China into the world, will it translate the fact that these internet companies with their payment systems and they're offering insurance and they're offering, you know, everything down to like, you know, car, HP finance and so on, can they take that First into Asia and then globally, what are the prospects for them in, in a sort of a more competitive marketplace where they don't have that protection? They're going to be going into, uh, I mean, yes, broadly, I think they will, they'll find it a lot easier to, to make their way through different Asian markets than trying to just go bang, okay, I'm setting up in, in, in the U.S. Now, Alibaba has, has, has attempted to, to make acquisitions in the U.S. They have businesses in, the US, in North America and, and, and Europe, so it's not like they're ignoring that part of the world. Uh, or, or are irrelevant, but I think they found it slow going, um, and um, and I think that it will be a lot easier for them to to operate in uh, in in other parts of Asia. Partly because when you're dealing with big emerging markets, you know, fairly chunky population sizes, you, there's a lot of data there that you can play with. You know, like India and Indonesia, you know, very large populations, so that's attractive. Um, again, what you know, fairly wide open spaces. And there's there you have you know huge amounts of people that uh, don't have traditional banking services who who would really benefit very immediately from some of the of these technologies. You have great engineers in you know in India itself has built up a huge uh, a huge payments uh, mm-hmm. digital payments industry by themselves, uh, and and Alibaba invests in some of those companies, but. Uh, as do some of the the U.S. players. So I think some people see that these com- countries will be kind of a, a, a battleground, uh, you know, a, a, com- a competitive a competitive arena to see will it be the Alibabas or will it be the the Amazons and the Facebooks that that prevail in in winning the most the most customers and turning those into you know, you know partnerships and, and you know accessing accessing these big populations with their rising levels of wealth um you know and high connectivity rates do, do they go about it differently i mean you, you sort of you bridge both worlds in a way i mean you're from the u.s you live in asia you you on the doorstep of mainland china you see how these companies behave on both sides how, how do you see them in that battleground 
do they approach it with a different mindset? Do they come in with different yeah. resources? What, what's the difference? I think the difference is that, you know, in Facebook and Google, um, they, their revenues primarily are still around advertising. You know, they're, uh, this is probably overdoing it, but they're, they're giant ad driven businesses. Um, and they've been very successful at that. And I think they, they kind of see the world through that prism. Mm. The Chinese tend to have a much more conglomerate type approach where, and they, they've been very good at not, they, they ignore traditional silos. Uh, they ignore, uh, boundaries between industries and they, they connect these things. Um, the, the only company in the U S that's really good at doing that would be Amazon, which has the same kind of mindset. Um, but you also have in the U S these technology companies out of Silicon Valley emerge in their own little spaces and they compete They're They're fragmented, uh, and they compete in, in those kind of fragmented marketplaces in China. They've mashed everything together. So WeChat is a good example of the, the things that you can do on WeChat it's not just WhatsApp, right? Mm -hmm. Which would be, you know, as an American or a European, you'd say, okay, well, it's like WhatsApp. But it's like WhatsApp times 10 mm -hmm. uh, or WhatsApp, you know, to the third power. I mean, it, because there's so much other functionality on that thing uh, that you use it for so many other things. So you, you're, you become uh, reliant on it and, and, and Tencent becomes the provider or the partner or its partners become the providers to you of all kinds of, of things um, in, in a way that you don't have. Whereas in the West, you've got WhatsApp here, you've got Instagram for that. Uh, then you've got, um, you know, a Kindle uh, for, for books. You know, it, it's, 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 it's fragmented. So it's a, it's a different starting point, kind of a different philosophy and a different set of, uh, of, of needs, I guess. So, yes, they, they're, not, they're not like for like. Okay, good. Let's talk about some of the disruptive technologies because we can't talk about fintech without talking about technologies like blockchain. And you mentioned earlier, Jame, about the range of countries in Asia. I think that's important to gauge, isn't it? Because you don't just look at Asia as one market. I mean, within Asia, and you're talking about blockchain, there's various levels and very, very, you know, a wide set of different you know, acceptance of blockchain within jurisdictions. And there's a lot of different things going on. And, you know, they're all moving at very different speeds as well. And, and you know, we're sort of teeing this up for somebody who is looking at Asia for the first time and looking at maybe blockchain, fintech and so on. Can we talk about blockchain in terms of, first of all, at the Asia level, what is the, you know, the, the general sort of, you know, trend, the general movements and so on. Then they sort of drill down into individual countries maybe and look at, you know, which countries are really sort of pushing the boundaries on disrupting fintech through blockchain. Blockchain is, um, it, it is, you know, distributed ledger. So blockchain is an encrypted shared database. Uh, it, it's a way of, of keeping track of, Files, uh, files that can store value on them, uh, or or information in, that that cannot be they're immutable, they can't be changed, uh, and they are a very useful way of of transmitting things on a peer to peer basis without an intermediary being required or a trusted third party being required in the middle to adjudicate uh, or or validate um, what's being traded or who's who's getting it. So at that level. It's everywhere. I mean, blockchain is you, you find it in, in all all parts of the world. It's it's developing rapidly. Um, and the the developers in the various projects who work on this stuff, they are also distributed around the world. You'll find them from they're in Switzerland, they're in Taiwan, they're in uh, the US, they're in France, they're in South Africa. I mean, they're they're literally, you know, Tel Aviv, they're everywhere. So I, I don't think that it you know, this is a, an amazing technology that I think will have over the next, you know, 15 years or so will have, uh, an enormous impact, uh, on, on all kinds of things, not just in finance. Um, but I'm not sure if there's a specific, yes. I mean, it, it, there's, there are specific things happening in, in Asia. Um, and, and, and it's being, it's starting to be taken up in different ways, 
but but it's a it's a global phenomenon, mm. and that I think that's important to to start with. Um, you know, the wh- what's the who, who benefits from blo- blockchain helps move around assets in a decentralized manner, uh, as opposed to a centralized manner where you've got a central bank or you've got a or an int- financial intermediary who has to who has to who, who charges you a fee for you know moving your money from point A to point B. Uh, in a in a blockchain decentralized thing, you, there is no centralized authority doing that. You do it peer to peer, in a in a safe uh, way. Um, so, what are the use cases for for something like that? And one of the biggest use cases is uh, where you don't have traditional or you don't have a lot of traditional financial infrastructure already set up. You can start from scratch much more quickly with new new technologies uh when it's kind of a open playing field Mm. rather than trying to go to where you've got you know decades worth of accumulated uh technology and processes and laws and structures around how we handle finance in in the traditional way so the change will happen faster where you don't have people on traditional infrastructure Um, and that means uh people that aren't using banks or don't have credit cards don't have access to insurance in the traditional manner so in asia you have you have a huge population of people like that um and so i think that recreating infrastructure that helps these people get access to services not necessarily to a bank but to a service that provides the kind of things that a person needs a loan or to move money to the family or something like that in a much cheaper much faster much more effective manner this is where these new technologies have a chance to to uh to take off um because they'll they'll just be um a lot of people who will benefit much more quickly uh from from this and there won't be a lot of incumbents in the way trying to uh, gum up the system mm. yeah the that that population that doesn't have access to the the traditional financial infrastructure so you know let's say the the underbanked or the unbanked whatever you want to call them in asia i mean we're talking markets of billions in some cases aren't we i mean china has 500 million people that live outside of cities in India more again, right? So, you know, that market, is that sort of ripe for blockchain? Would that market be a market that traditional retail banking would overlook because it's just unprofitable, that blockchain could perhaps provide, you know, provide some kind of better solution for? Well, I think blockchain is a tool. Um, so I think that business models will be using uh, blockchain technology to help them provide new ways of doing financial services. So money transfer operations, you, you get an app that helps, let's say, um, let, let's say um, a maid, uh, a Filipina maid in Hong Kong uh, who wants to send money back to her family in, uh, in Cebu. Okay. So um, that this person traditionally would have to go to her, her a bank or a wire service to wire the money back and, the bank will charge, you know, a pretty high fee, and it'll take them a week or ten days, um, and it's kind of slow, it's clumsy, and it's expensive, and you got to stand in line and fill out a bunch of forms. Uh, but with these new, you know, remittance companies, um, they will they use blockchain technology so that they will sometimes move your money back uh, to a. Uh, uh, somebody on the other side, um, you still have to physically go in and collect or take the money out from from a partner, which might be like a Seven Eleven or some mom and pop stuff. But but they the 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 decentralized technology they they might put your uh, I've I've seen models where they they take your your Hong Kong dollars, they might convert it to Bitcoin. It takes you know ten minutes, and then on the other side, uh, it then is converted from Bitcoin into pesos and out it comes and it, it costs next to nothing and it's it's almost, it's not instant but it's very fast um the, these models become a little less ten, tenable when you've got massive volatility in bitcoin so bitcoin can bitcoin's price can 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 gyrate wildly so it, it may not be a, a great store of uh, you know, f- a sustainable uh, store for this kind of activity but we're seeing you know but the, the point is that the technology is the 
they're using distributed ledger technology to to achieve this and um and it's it's the it's the tools they use to be able to provide a service that's cheap uh, almost free super fast super reliable um better in just about every conceivable way than than the traditional uh pipes hmm. Yeah, I mean, the traditional pipes here in Asia are pretty messy. I mean, I speak from experience trying to get money in and out of Japan, for example. You know, how difficult that is just to get, you know, just a very basic transfer from, you know, I'm not transferring money in and out of the Seychelles, for example. I mean, this is legitimate money and it's it's just difficult. And then, you know, running a business in India in the past as well, it's almost impossible to transfer money in and out of India. So I find it, you know, that's a real point of frustration for, you know, an increasingly global marketplace. But, you know, not everybody is sort of moving at the same space here, same speed, I should say. You know, you have just recently, I mean, at the beginning of the year, Vietnam, for example, as an example, I mean, I don't know if it's indica- indicative of, of the region, but, you know, they, uh, well, took steps to clamp down on digital currencies um, there, I mean, a few others in Southeast Asia, like Indonesia as well, which are pretty, you know, negative towards digital currencies as well. I mean, what, what's sort of going on? I mean, is that sort of just a temporary sort of holding measure? Or do you think these com- these countries will open up and be a lot more acceptable about, you know, blockchain and digital currency in the future? I think um, people sometimes confuse the, the Bitcoin story with or other cryptocurrency with the, the underlying blockchain, blockchain technology itself. Um and they are two different things. Uh, the blockchain technology is the enabler for the cryptocurrencies to move around, but it can also move things other than cryptocurrencies. It can move, you know, bank records or medical files. Um, the 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 biggest uh, concern governments have massive concerns about about uh, cryptocurrencies because uh, they they can't readily be tracked. Uh, people can shift assets across the border uh, instantly. Um, and, and it, it upsets the, the role of the central bank. Um, also they don't, they want to be able to tax, uh, the income people make on this stuff. The, 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 the biggest clampdown has been in China in terms of they have banned, uh, they banned ICOs, they banned, uh, exchanges. I think they, I can't remember if they banned the mining or they just made it very difficult, but, uh, they don't want people um, sending money out of the country. It falls in with their capital controls. Um, and they also don't want a, uh, I think they also don't like uh, people being able to create their own networks of, of power networks that could challenge, say, the People's Bank of China's remit. So they, they've come down very hard on, on this. Um, South Korea has also banned some of this activity um, and and for the but but in the Chinese case, the, the the leading issue is probably around capital controls. They couch it as a safety thing, they because mm-hmm. there is a lot of fraud as well. So they they the language they use is you know they're Ponzi schemes. But the real the real reason is probably to to enforce capital controls. But you know people it it, it just drives people in China to to figure out new ways to to get around these issues. So in some ways, it's spurring the very innovation that they're trying right. to just. Um, but then on the other extreme, you've got Japan, which uh, has the, the the regulator there has, has has gone out of its way to embrace and and try to codify and, and regulate in a, in, a, in, a, in a constructive way uh, use of of Bitcoin and other cryptos. And there's more merchants that are accepting of it, and uh, it's it's a very popular thing. So um, you've got the two extremes uh, next door here in Asia, you've got one where they're they're banning it and trying to s- destroy it or, or get, at least keep it out of their system. Uh, and then you've got another country that's kind of throwing the doors open and saying, yeah, this is this is good. Let's do more of this. And you've got so so Japan has a proliferation of exchanges and and more, I'd say, uh, still pretty slow, but still some uptake at the merchant level of actually being able to use this stuff. So it's, it's very interesting to see these these contrasts mm-hmm. so you know when you talk you write about uh, you know fintech you write about disruption change on a daily basis which you know obviously we've taken the example of bitcoin or digital currencies and to some extent blockchain you know that that 
contrast between China and Japan. But on the other hand, you know, if you look at China in terms of mobile payments, it's far more advanced than Japan, even though Japan had mobile payments back in the 90s, effectively, but didn't really get anywhere with them. You know, when you write about this stuff and the contrast, which countries, which jurisdictions, which cities, for example, excite you? Do you think that, you know, these... Yeah, they're really getting it right. They're putting all, you know, the the foundations in place that, you know, they're taking a long view on this. This is the place where, you know, you can really see the future happening. If we look across Asia, you know, for somebody outside of the region looking in, where should they look first to really get a feel for, you know, the future of fintech? Yeah, uh, probably Singapore. Uh, they have uh, the, the, they have a few advantages. They've got a single regulator that's very well integrated into the overall government. They've got a vision for uh, you know smart city. They also because it's it's always been uh, in a, a tough time zone, a tough tough zip code. Um, you know they they don't have a big China on their behind them to to to, to for uh, to drive the scale of their capital markets. So. They've always had a, a tradition of of trying to be innovative uh, and, and and rely on innovation to 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 create business, um, and they've laid out you know they've the, the all the processes. It's it's a lot easier to do everything digitally there, um, you know, government documentation and and you know really boring stuff like that. But it makes it easy to operate a, a digital business there. Um, Again, it's another place where you don't have to really use cash. When I go there, I, I don't use cash very much. Um, it's, uh, but unlike in China, it's it's quite open to companies from all over the world. Um, I can ease. I can both use WeChat or WhatsApp in, um, or or I can use Didi or I can use Uber. Um, you know, there, there's there's everything's there, um, and and you have a lot of. And the government supports uh, fintech very strongly, um, maybe too strongly in some ways. They throw a lot of money at it, um, but it's uh, it's a good platform. Um, but by itself, it's not going to move the dial. It's it's more of a place to incubate, come up with ideas. Also, it's English speaking, so that makes it you know easy the population. So that's easy to attract talent. Um, but they also are very open to immigration, so they have they get a lot of talent from all over the world. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a pretty progressive place, um, and probably leading the pack. Um, but everywhere it's happening everywhere. All, all these markets have, have stuff going on. Uh, and, um, and so it's, it's, it's fun to watch. Can you talk a little bit more about Singapore in terms of how progressive it is? I mean, without sort of knowing too much about the details of what was hype and what was reality when Singapore announced that it was going to put the Singapore dollar on ledger. What exactly were they talking about in terms of... They have a, yeah, they have, I mean, a, a couple of governments are looking at this, but Singapore has done a lot of work. They call it Project Ubin. Uh, and they are, yeah, digitizing the Singapore dollar is, is sort of the goal or part of it. Um, and they, they've gone through several phases. It's still a work in progress. They're still working with a variety of, of developers and vendors to come up with different ways of, of doing this. They want it to become not just within Singapore, but also at a cross-border level where you can trade uh, starting with Singapore dollar. And I think they would like to see other uh, Southeast Asia countries at some point um, join them on this. Um, and it's a way for governments to, uh, instead of having people use Bitcoin, why not use a digital version of the Singapore dollar? So they have, um, you know, it's still something that would be issued, you know, mined by the, the central bank, uh, the Monetary Authority of Singapore. Uh, and, and they would still play some kind of centralized role. Uh, but the... But payments could be made digitally. Um, it would, you know, the, the money supply would include a digital tranche, not just be reliant on um, on, on on cash notes and stuff. Uh, and I think they see it as uh, as a big step toward, you know, creating a, f a fully digital modern society. Uh, so I think that's why they're they're experimenting with this, um, and they're they're pretty. 
compared to other governments, they're they're pretty advanced. But you know, the the, the Chinese have also been experimenting with the stuff. It, it's not nearly as public as what the Singaporeans do. But you know, I I hear regularly that they're doing this. Um, people work who work on that. Um, other governments in the West have have tried it. I think I don't know how easily i don't know how you know canada and the uk for example i don't know to what extent those those projects are, are moving ahead I, I just don't know but um but but uh, but singapore's project ubin is one to watch if for people who are interested in this space mm. no, because i wonder about that is that you know you you mention it as a digital currency as opposed to a decentralized currency so i mean is that sort of you know when you talk about Project Ubin to the fintech community and especially probably those more at the edges, do they, do they sort of, you know, see this as the right way to go? Because possibly, you know, one of the reasons they got behind blockchain or Bitcoin, for example, in the first place was because it was decentralized as a, you know, rather than the fact it was digital. I'm just wondering what the sort of real driver is here. The, um, I, I think we're going to see a lot of, uh, of currencies emerge. Some of them will be government. Some of them will be tied to uh, uh, t- some will represent the tokenization of, of commerce. And, and some of them will then be kind of pure play speculative things or stores of value or commodities like, like Bitcoin could be. Um, I think we're going to, we've already got, um, I don't know what the number is now, 1500 or so of these tokens or different coins that are rolling around out there. And I'm sure there's going to be more, I think we're going to see an explosion of of coins and and some of them will be government notes you know they'll be backed by they'll be de facto um fiat currency but they'll be in a digital format Hmm. okay fascinating well i mean let's bring this round to conclusion you've been in asia for over 20 years now the next 20 years is obviously you know a lot of people talk about this as the asian century there's a lot of hype about asia in general but there are a lot of economic events looming on the horizon which will obviously sort of consolidate that position globally. Obviously, you know, China being becoming the world's largest economy, however you measure it within those 20 years, Asia becoming the world's largest trading block, et cetera, et cetera. There's, you know, there's a series of events that are coming up on the horizon. When you look forward to the, the next 20 years, especially in fintech, I know it's hard to predict that far out because, you know, we couldn't have predicted 20 years back where we'd be now, for example. But where do you see Asia in that picture in terms of finance globally? Do you think we're going to see some sort of radical shift out of the West? Or do you think it will still, you know, financial centers like London or New York will still be as important as they are now? I think they'll still be important and relevant. But, um, you know, I think Asia will be a, a much bigger part of, the, of that story. Uh, and... And whether which financial center in Asia will will emerge, you know, will it will it continue to be Hong Kong, Singapore, or will at some point will will Shanghai or Shenzhen become, uh, you know, a, a more relevant player? These are huge markets already, but they're closed to capital shifts from, from in and out. Um, so it's it's difficult for international people to to operate from a financial perspective, and you know, as investing or or, or trading these. Um, uh, true also for, for India. Um, so uh, I, I do think that the just the sheer weight of economic activity is, is still continuing to, to gravitate um, to Asia. I think that's becoming more apparent. Uh, and uh, yeah, the region will, will continue to, to, to be bigger and bigger. Um, I, I think that we're also in a, I, I temper that a little bit in terms of not just sheer size of economy though, but also Issues around dynamism, around innovation, um, and mass innovation is the is what enabled the industrial revolution and the rise of the United States. It wasn't just it wasn't just demographics, but it was also cultures where you had innovation happening, not just at one or two points, but you know across the board. I think China is is getting there. Um, and, and that's one reason w- that its, its story will continue to propel in the way that it's, it's, com- it's using, uh, you know, artificial intelligence and a variety of other technologies is, is very impressive. Um, but, you know, the, U- the U.S. W- and, and other parts of the world will also continue on, on this path. Um, it's easy right now to just sort of uh, decide that China is going to be the superpower of the future and that's it. You know, when you've got Brexit and Trump, 
uh, you know, a very inward turn uh, in, in the West. Um, and, and also, I'd say, in the U.S. case, you know, sort of a, a pretty alarming deterioration of, of just, you know, governance and, and standards uh, and, and trust in the institutions. Uh, so the question is, you know, if, if is this a passing phase? Will, will America be capable of, of renovation and, and, and finding a, a more healthy path? Um, if it does, it will continue to be a massive innovator and it will continue to be an important part of, of the story. And also, I think there's, um, you know, some, some things in Europe that are also positive. So I don't think it's going to be a, a lopsided, you know, dystopian uh, nightmare for, for people in the West. You know, I'd right. stay away from watching too many zombie films. But, but, but I think what we are seeing, though, is that uh, Asia is, um, is going to be incredibly, um, increasingly more important. Um, it's going to get richer. Its economies are going to continue to grow here. Um, the, the Chinese are showing that you can have mass innovation. You talked about the Japanese have also have had that great technology, and that's also true. And you're, we're finding that in a lot of places. Um, and if you want to include Australia as part of the region, I wouldn't say culturally it's not, but certainly as, as part of a, an economic block, it's, it's, it's important. And they don't have a big population. But again, they have um, uh, you know some, some cutting-edge stuff. So this this region is is the, the weight of 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 GDP and, and trade as you as you rightly point out is 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 bending this way, and and now we're also getting tech and innovation. So from a, from a Western perspective, Asia will be more and more important. Uh, but if the U.S. and Europe really want to compete, they can. They just have to. Um, but you know they'll they'll have to they'll have to be better at what they do. They'll have to improve their governance. They have to renovate their own selves and. Um, and and to, to maintain the, their own prospects. Right, exactly. And also, maybe they, they need to show up. Those those American and European companies need to get on a plane and fly to Asia and take a look, right? I mean, land in Hong Kong as a jumping off point and see what's going on. Just as the Asians did generations ago, right? When they wanted to go and learn about manufacturing, they, you know, they took ships over to the US or went to Detroit and learned how they were doing it there. So I think you know, there's a real benefit in that, especially if you've got a place like Silicon Valley, which, you know, really is the epicenter of the world for innovation in many cases or has been. But, you know, they, they has, really has been, but, uh, but, you know, a little complacent, maybe. And exactly. um, and uh, and I think what's happening in Asia, you know, would probably surprise uh, some people. It's easy to dismiss stuff that you don't understand. But. Um, you know, it's. I think there was a point where they would look at Chinese tech and just say, "Well, they're just copying us, yeah, and there's a sort of they're they're taking our ideas, they're they're maxing up, and then they're building protective walls so that we can't get in." And and that's, you know, it's kind of true. But now the, um, but 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 the Chinese do have an innovative culture now, and they're and they 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 have extremely sophisticated stuff because of the the their the size of their population has given them a unique opportunity to to cultivate the data uh, at a scale that nobody else really can match i mean in in that context the u.s is a mid-sized country so um that that data is uh and the ability to to understand it and manipulate it and and, and then extrapolate that to other industries um you know that is that is a powerful thing and um and and people were gonna have to to learn how to find their own models to 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 retain their competitiveness we can't just rely on protectionism and stuff to to to, to keep this out because it will it will break through those walls at some point that's james dibiasio everybody co-founder of digfin james real pleasure having you on the show and thanks for educating us in the hour about what's Thank going you, on yeah no it's fascinating what's going on in asia and fintech i mean it's such a broad area subject i mean the markets itself are so vast that an hour really doesn't do it justice, but we've just sort of scratched the surface today to give people a, a 101. A 101, but it was fun. So I hope uh, hope your audience uh, enjoyed it. And uh, thank you for everyone for, for listening. Yeah, and where do people find out more about you? Where can people go and read your stories and your, your work on Digfin? Uh, yeah, so our website is www.digfingroup.com. So Digfin is D-I-G-F-I-N, like digital finance, digfingroup.com. And uh, that's where... We publish, and so we publish stuff for for people in the financial world. If you, if you're just a, uh, uh, you, you can take a look if you're curious. But we're we're not a. I would not say we're a broad consumer type of place we're for people people who specialize in financial services. But uh, but if if that's an area that you're interested in, then uh, by all means look us up. 
Thank you. Excellent. And you write as well. You're uh, an author on that publication. Uh, well, for Ditchfin, yeah, I mean, I do most of it right now is, is me. Uh, hopefully over time, we'll, we'll grow a bigger team. I've got one uh, reporter who helps me with China. Um, she's Chinese, so we, we, we're developing relationships there. Um, and, and hopefully over time, we'll, we'll, we'll get the, the means to, to add more. Excellent. Jaime, great having you on the show. Thank you so much for sharing your insights and your journey with us. We really enjoyed that. And as James said, there's the details. If you want to go and check out the Ditchfin website, go and see what's hot and what's new in the, the di digital finance market in Asia. You can also reach out, I guess, to Jamie. That you've got all your details on the website there. And please come back for a 102 maybe in future and give us an update on what's going on in the Asian markets. That'd be great, Graham. Thank you. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show.